Hey, everybody. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbV. In each episode, Nora has a real conversation with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hello, Stuff You Should Know listeners. If you want to come see us live, you've only got a couple of more cities this year that still have tickets, and that is Orlando and New Orleans. Yep, we'll be in Orlando on October 9th at the Plaza Live, and we'll be in New Orleans at the Civic Theater the following night, October 10th. And friends, like Chuck said, you better go get your tickets. Go to SYSKLive.com for info and ticket links and everything you need to come see us. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. This is Stuff You Should Know, uh, the podcast. Yeah. And Chuck, I have a question for you. Yes. You know what ticks me off? <laughs> Lyme disease. I'm so mad at you. <laughs> Blame Yumi for that one. She's like, you should say this. And I said, you know what? Tell her dear, I'm so mad at I her. should totally say that. Uh, yeah, this is sort of a follow-up to our July 27th, 2010 episode, Why Ticks Suck, mm-hmm. which, uh, in which, which is sort of a legendary episode because we – uh, falsely promised to send people T-shirts if they made it all the way through the episode. <laughs> that's right. That's we right. were just kidding, but we still get those requests of "Where's my shirt?" Yes, that's hilarious. I forgot about that. And we, also, we wanna... get sued today. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Um, also, want to point out and shout out our former website, HowStuffWorks.com, mm-hmm. because a couple of the articles that we used for much of this episode is from the old HSW website. Nice. They're holding it down over there. They're holding it down, and this, this is some good stuff. Yeah, so we're talking today about Lyme disease in particular. Not Lyme's. No, we should say it's capital L-Y-M-E disease, and the reason it's called that is because it's named after a town, which is one of three towns where the initial outbreak of Lyme disease that led to this um, bacterial infection, persistent bacterial infection, um, was first uh, describe medically. Yeah, about one that. of the facts of the show, I think. Oh, yeah? Sure. Who knew well, it was named after a town? Lyme, Connecticut. I knew. Did you know that before this? Sure. Did we cover that and why ticks suck? I don't think so. All right. Well, you're smarter than me then. No, it's not that. <laughs> I think what, what got me was I, I heard about people saying, like, no, Lyme disease, like, people take it for granted, but it's actually some this really mysterious illness. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I think I looked into this years back, and that's when I found out. All right. That was all. So we're equally smart. Right, exactly. I'm not smarter than you. And what is smarts? It's just like someone happens to know one thing, someone else knows another. Sure. I say they cancel out. We're all smart. 
There you go. I'm glad you pulled that out because I would have been like, what is smarts? Uh, I couldn't have come up with the definition. So Lyme disease, um, we'll, we'll go ahead and hit you with a couple of stats here. Uh, Lyme disease in the United States has more than doubled since 1997. That's astounding. It is. Uh, and it is spread, too. It used to be very much localized in kind of the northeast uh, sort of mid-Atlantic areas, some in the south. But now you can get Lyme disease in, I believe, the entire lower 48. Is that correct? There, there are cases in all 48 states. Supposedly half of the counties in the United States now are considered at high risk for Lyme disease. And, like, all of this happened just in the last, like, 20 or so years. Yeah. Which is, I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of debate over, the CDC calls Lyme disease endemic, which is a disease that has become a part, like an ongoing part of an area or region. And some other people are saying, guys, what, what we're talking about here is an epidemic. This is an epidemic, and you should start calling it that because it will kind of raise the alarm to the next level or two where it should be because this is a very alarming spread of disease that we're seeing right now. Lyme disease is the number one vector-borne disease in the United States. It's way more prevalent than things like West Nile or chikungunya or anything like that. But it's still kind of treated as like a up there in the northeastern U.S. thing. And that's just not the case. It's it's spread every in every direction except east because it hit the Atlantic. But everywhere else where it can spread into the interior of the United States and up into Canada, it's starting to. Yeah, and there's also a history continuing to this day even uh, where Lyme disease can be um, overlooked, misdiagnosed, um, not taken as seriously by your doctor as uh-huh. it should be, Yeah. Um, including what we'll get to later on, something called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all very frustrating if you have been a an individual that has had Lyme disease. Yeah. There's a big community out there of people that are like, why won't anyone listen to us? Why won't our doctors take us seriously? And what do we have to do here? Like, do we have to start dropping dead? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of frustration in in that community because the, there's a sentiment among the medical establishment that, you know, hey, Just take man, some antibiotics, you'll be exactly. fine. Exactly. It's easy to cure Lyme disease. Here's some antibiotics. You still have persistent symptoms. Those are probably in your head. We're not going to say they're in your head, but they're in your head. And the people who are experiencing these symptoms are like, no, my life has, has been derailed by these symptoms, and you guys aren't doing anything about it. It's frustrating. I know there's a lot of people out there that are Mm-mm. pretty pretty stoked right now to be hearing this. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. We're advocating for you guys. Sure. Not patting myself on the back, although I am literally patting You're myself. like, I see you, Chuck. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> that elbow is sticking out pretty far. So Lyme disease uh, is a disease. It's an infection uh, caused by the bacterium uh, Borrelia burgdorferi. <laughs> wow. Borgdorferi. Burgdorferi. We're going to get you an apron and call you the word butcher. Bergdorferi. Mork, mork, mork. <laughs> and we'll get to why it's called that in a bit. Okay. But if you haven't caught on by now, it is transmitted through tick bites. Right. So a tick, and in particular a nymph stage of a tick, which is a like young adult or juvenile tick, um, will transmit this bacteria, the Borrelia burgdorferi, um, into a human. And the reason we usually get it from nymphs, Chuck, is because 
An adult tick doesn't find humans particularly appetizing, but a nymph tick will because they're stupid. They don't know anything yet. So as they're feeding on us after somewhere maybe around 24 to 36 hours of feeding, this infected tick that has this bacteria in it, the bacteria will make its way from the mid-gut to the tick's saliva, and the tick transmits it into the human bloodstream where it just absolutely wreaks havoc on the, the human body. Yeah, and you said something really key there, uh, 24, 36, 48 hours later. Mm-hmm. Really, really important. They have to be attached to you for that long, sometimes even longer, to transmit this bacterium. So if you find a tick on you and you get it off, you don't need to sweat Lyme disease. No. If you get no. it off in due time. Right, exactly. If like you see it's still crawling on you, it's unattached, you don't worry about it at all. Um, but when it is attached and when, when, it, when it has transmitted the bacteria, uh, what it's transmitted, this B. burgdorferi, is like really a- amazing at its job, which is infecting you, giving you a bacterial infection. Um, it, it has figured out how to zoom through the bloodstream, but then also take itself out of the bloodstream by latching onto... The, cell, the walls of your blood vessels. Yeah, this was crazy about this cellular stuff, that mm-hmm. once it's attached to a cell, they said it's like a slinky. It doesn't let go. It just, like, basically reaches out and grabs the next cell without letting go of the previous cell mm-hmm. and just sort of walks end over end, right. never unattaching itself. Right, exactly. So um, as it's moving along, it's never it, it it's not going to get kind of you know washed away in the extracellular matrix. It's stuck to the cell if it wants to be stuck to the cell. It can do the same thing to the blood vessel walls to pull itself out of the bloodstream and then go attack you know specific parts of the body. So it, it's really good at hanging on. That's one thing that makes it kind of uh, pernicious. And then like another ticks. thing. Exactly. It's basically, yeah, it's like the bacteria version of a tick. I didn't think about that. Um, And then another thing it does, Chuck, I think this is really, really recent research. It can actually change its protein expression at a much faster rate than the normal mutation rate for bacteria. Something like 15 times faster. Yeah, well, what that does is that just makes it really hard for our human immune system to catch up to it. Right, because our immune system will produce antibodies based on the initial infection, but by the time the antibodies come around, the um, this, the bacteria may have changed the, the itself so that the antibodies won't recognize it. They'll just go right past it because it doesn't it doesn't fit the description that the antibodies have. That's right, and you'll know that something bad is happening. First of all, if you find that tick, mm-hmm. but if you get headaches, fever. Uh, fatigue is a huge, huge symptom. Yep. Um, but the real telltale is what's called EM. It's an expanding skin rash called uh, erythema migrans. And it's like uh, it's that circular pattern. And I know we did talk about this on the Ticks episode, but sure. it's a circular pattern with a what looks like a bullseye in the center of it. Yes. And you can take off your butcher's apron now because you just, that was <laughs> beautiful. Put on your chef's, chef's hat. You're sweating over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, that, uh, that particular rash, that bullseye rash, that is like a, just an absolute telltale sign that you have a Lyme borealis, borreliosis infection. That only comes around in like maybe 70 to 80% of cases. I think if every if every person got that rash, 
we would not have this this problem with Lyme disease because it would be caught very quickly because you get that within usually about a week or less of getting infected. But it doesn't come up in all cases. And um, with some of those other symptoms, like you said, like weakness, headaches, um, flu-like symptoms, like those could be a lot of different other things, joint pain. Um, and so th- the uh, Lyme disease infection goes undiagnosed or misdiagnosed in a lot of cases or did for many, many years. It's just now that they're starting to kind of recognize it or suspect Lyme when otherwise they might not have. Yeah, I mean, literally hundreds of things can be, uh, can have the same symptoms as Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. So Lyme's been around for a long time. Um, We'll talk about the history here in a minute as far as the 1970s go and official recognition, but... It's been around, uh, I believe, Yale School of Public Health uh, find the bacterium in ancient uh, North America, like 60,000 years old. Right. Before the arri- arrival of humans, uh, they they have an autopsy of a 5,300-year-old mummy that had Lyme disease. Yeah, you know, Utsi, the Iceman. <laughs> remember him? I remember Utsi. Yeah, I was disappointed that they referred to him as a 5,300-year-old mummy. It's like, no, it's Utsi, the ice sure. Everybody knows him. Give him his name. But he had Lyme disease. He did. And there was a German physician named Alfred Buchwald who described this, that uh, EM skin rash that we now call Lyme disease uh, mm-hmm. about 130 years ago. Right. So, so Lyme disease has been around a while, but we are just now seeing a huge, again, an epidemic of it. Um, and in a massive spread of it, not just in North America, but there's also two other kinds of ticks that transmit two other kinds of Lyme-causing bacteria in Europe and Asia. And in all three places, North America, Europe, and parts of Asia, um, the incidence of Lyme disease is picking up at an alarming pace. I think we should slow down our pace, take okay. a break. Okay, all right. And we'll come back and we'll talk about Lyme, Connecticut, right after this. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But You can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887, and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey everybody, we're here to tell you about Viator, a tool that you can use to plan and book travel experiences around the world. 
That's right. The Viator app and website make it easy to explore 300,000 plus travel experiences so you can discover what's out there no matter where you're traveling or what you're interested in. Yep. Viator can help you plan better travel experiences. 300,000 plus travel experiences to choose from means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. That's right. You can also enjoy real traveler reviews to get insider information from people who've already been on the experience that you're considering. Plus, you get free cancellation that helps you plan for the unexpected. Yeah. And Viator offers 24-7 customer service, so you know you'll get support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. So download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find the perfect travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right. So Lime, Connecticut, something that's very old hat to you. <laughs> right. Brand new to me. about it for years. <laughs> Lime, old Lime, and what was the third town? I don't remember. No, let's just call it uh, New Lime. <laughs> it was not They're going to be so mad. Their high school football team is going to go berserk <laughs> on Old Lime this year. Uh, in the 1970s, though, there were a group of children uh, and adults in these towns in Connecticut that were having all these weird symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, swollen knees, skin rashes, headaches, uh, all this severe fatigue. And it, it's bad enough these days, but in the early 1970s, doctors were definitely – did not have this on the radar, and were very dismissive of what was going on in these towns. Mm-hmm. And if it were not for the work of Judith Minch and Polly Murray, mm-hmm. two just regular moms, although Polly Murray did work for the World Health Organization for a while, they were advocates. They were patient advocates because their families were getting sick, and no one would listen. And they were like, someone's got to do something. Something's going on here, and these doctors are not being any help. Right. And it was a big deal. Polly Murray ended up writing a book. She made it sort of her life's work uh, in 1996, a book called The Widening Circle. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of uh, sort of the persistent sexism in science, they were largely discounted, even though they had a list of 37 individuals. They researched on their own, contacted scientists. Uh, I just We we just really need to shout them out. Polly Murray died Mm -hmm. um, just about a month ago. Uh, at the age of 85. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, she was a persistent cuss, as they call him up in the Yankee states. That's right. So, um, the, the, on the one hand, yes, the, from the everything I've read and all the impressions I have, they were very much dismissed, and it was very much sexist. And also, I think, because they weren't doctors. But on the, at the, on the other hand, the doctors who were being presented with these cases were like, I have no idea what this is, so let's just pretend it's not real. But luckily, those two women in the uh, groups that they established, they went on and they contacted Yale uh, Medical School, they contacted the state, and they really kind of put this on the map. They said, there is a mysterious epidemic that's going on where you have a lot of kids who suddenly have juvenile arthritis out of nowhere. What are you guys going to do about it? And because of their agitation, this mystery made its way to the desk or I guess the microscope of a guy named Willy um, Bergdorfer. And he was, at the time, the world's foremost authority on what's called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is another tick-borne bacterial infection. I remember that when I was a kid. That was a big news item. It was. A scary one. 
He was working out in Colorado, and Colorado was ground zero for Rocky Mountain spotted fever for a while, um, which is, yeah, you do not want to have that. It's a really bad bacterial infection. But by this time, they had done, thanks to the legwork um, done by the, the the moms and the patient advocate groups in Lyme, Connecticut, um, it had been pretty well established that the common thread between all these people besides the, where they lived, and by the way, it was um, Chuck Lyme, Old Lyme, and East Hat. Had him. Sorry, okay. East had him. Um, <laughs> aside from the fact that they all lived in the same region, was that all of them, or almost all of them, recalled being bitten by a tick, and a lot of them had a mysterious rash right before the symptoms presented. So it came to this guy, Willie um, Bergdorfer's um, microscope, because they had said, there's something in the ticks here that is creating this disease that we haven't encountered before. That's right. And he had already discovered this bacterium uh, called how do you how do you pronounce that spirochet spirochete spirochete <laughs> but a spirochete is a type of bacteria and that's spirochet. what spirochet that's what I know give me the apron <laughs> there you go <laughs> all right spirochet it, you just made me think of the older brother Chet and weird science now go make yourself one buttwad <laughs> <laughs> yeah man that guy had some good quotes oh yeah R.I.P. yeah what what Bill Paxton? When? Oh, he died a couple of years ago. Very sad. Are you sure? I'm You're positive. thinking of Bill Pullman. <laughs> no, Bill Paxton died. It was so sad because I had just listened to his uh, Mark Marin interview, and he was like, after that episode, I n- wanted nothing more than to be Bill Paxton's friend and neighbor. Oh, neat. He just sounded like the best guy and best family man, and he passed away way too early. Yeah, really. I'm, I did not know about that. Yeah. I saw Frailty not too many weeks ago. It's still... Pretty good. Was it the first viewing or? No, no, no. Oh, okay. I'd seen it before, but you know, yeah, man, great movie. Ago. Yeah, but he wrote and I believe directed and starred in it. Yeah, it was so good. And mm-hmm. I love a good Powers Booth casting call <laughs> for sure. It was it was unusual and surprising, but yeah. it was perfect. Very good, underrated film. Mm-hmm. Where are we? Oh yeah, we were talking <laughs> about Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Willie Bergdorfer identifying the spirochete. Um, that was causing Lyme disease. <laughs> right. Spirochet. What a dum-dum. Uh, no, so yeah, no. He... <laughs> Remember we established we're all smart. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, so he discovered this, uh, this parakeet. And he was honored uh, by this discovery and naming that thing uh, after himself. That's why it has that interesting name. I get the impression he didn't name it after himself. They named it after him. No, and he so said, said they oh, honored no, him. no, go on. Yeah. Okay. But there's a big difference between him saying, this thing's called the Bergdorferi bacteria, and somebody saying, we're going to name this after you. No, I totally agree. Okay. So, Bergdorferi, or Bergdorfer, <laughs> he figures out what is the basis of Lyme disease, which is great. That's an enormous breakthrough. It establishes that, yes, it is its own thing. It's its own disease. And because it was a bacteria, it's a spirochete, which, again, it's a kind of a snake-like shaped bacteria, specific kind that walks like a slinky. Um, because it was a bacterial infection, the medical establishment said, oh, we got this here. Take some antibiotics. And over, you know, the course of several years, starting in, I think the 90s is when they really started to say, okay, we can cure Lyme disease, especially if we catch it early on, um, by a two to four week round of antibiotics. Right. Here you go. And they said, case closed. We're the medical establishment. 
let's go have a party for ourselves. Yeah, and here's the thing. Like, uh, many times that can take care of the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they were just lazy and not doing their work. But I think they closed the book a little too soon, and a lot of people do, mm -hmm. because that, that oral, that round of oral antibiotics, um, if you catch it early, it can really work. But, uh, and I think they say, what, like nine times out of ten, if you catch it early, then that will, that will work. Right. They're so, they're so persistent with that assertion that if you find a tick on yourself and you live in a, an area where Lyme disease is known to thrive, um, if you can't say how long that tick's been on you, they're probably just going to give you that oh, really? round of antibiotics prophylactically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, like you said, in a lot of cases, and I believe from what I've read, the vast majority of cases in, in early stage Lyme disease, that round of antibiotics should work. Yeah, and they say that if you, and this is from the American Lyme Disease Foundation, uh, quote, if you live in an endemic area, mm -hmm. have symptoms consistent with early Lyme disease and suspect recent exposure to a tick, present your suspicion to your doctor so that he or she may make a more informed diagnosis. So right. Show up to your doctor and say, yeah. uh, Madam, sir, I would love <laughs> to present my suspicions to you. Please sit down. Well, they're saying sort of still, you still sort of need to be your own advocate because it is so hard to diagnose still. Because if right. you're going on symptoms alone, like we said, there are hundreds of things that share those symptoms, and Lyme disease may not be the first thing they think of. That's a huge problem with Lyme disease. Another huge problem is that the test we use to test for Lyme disease doesn't actually test for the B. burgdorferi um, bacteria. Right. It tests for the antibodies that should be present in your bloodstream if you have a bacterial infection. Not even specific to that one, but a bacterial infection. The problem is it takes days if not maybe a week or two before your body mounts an effective immune response yeah. against this infection. So if you find a tick and they give you a test, say, within the first couple days, it's going to come back negative, even though you very much have a Burgdorferi um, infection. It's going to come back negative because it's the antibodies haven't been created yet. The other part of the problem is even if you take a blood test that tests directly for the Burgdorferi bacterium, it moves out of the bloodstream really easily and within a several days. So there's a very brief window of time where you can directly test for the Burgdorferi um, bacteria and find it in a simple blood test. Yeah, you can also get false positives, uh, and they're advocating now for two-tiered testing mm -hmm. uh, for confirmation of the diagnosis. So if you get that first positive test... Uh, sometimes now you'll get a different test, a Western blot test, right. that's going to really get more specific to that antibody, not just the general antibodies. Right. So part of the other problem is that a lot, what, the reason a lot of patient activists and patient advocate groups say, no, doctors, you're wrong, like this is not good enough, is that there's a sneaking suspicion among people who have what's called chronic Lyme or post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome is that the round of antibiotics, the two- to four-week round of antibiotics that seemingly cured the Lyme disease symptoms that you had, actually failed to fully knock out the bacteria that created this infection, this created this Lyme disease in the first place, that it just burrowed further into your body. And because the medical establishment said, we got it, it's fine, You're, these antibiotics cured it, and didn't go deeper, 
um, that that bacterial infection is allowed to fester and then present in worse ways later. Yeah, and it's a really big deal because, you know, what will happen is they'll say, you're cured. We gave these antibiotics. They worked. Mm -hmm. But weeks and months and even years later when people have persistent fatigue and muscle aches and headaches and, you know, like your knee joints hurt, they said like a brain fog can happen. And these are all things that are – I don't want to say generic, but if you walk into your doctor and say, I feel like I'm fuzzy and I have a brain fog and I get headaches (laughs) and I'm tired, uh, it's sort of a wide – it's hard to pinpoint what's going on. Sure. And and they think you're cured of the Lyme disease. So that's where some of the more dismissive – at least from the Lyme disease community, they're saying, like, I have this chronic issue. And mm-hmm. they're saying, but no, there's no such thing as a chronic issue. Right. Well, they're also saying, like, look, we gave you a test for Lyme disease and you came back negative. Right. You know, we know you had it before. We tested you. We came back positive. We treated with antibiotics. Now we've tested you again and it's coming back negative. You don't have Lyme disease anymore. So there's a huge debate whether they're, the antibiotic course is not enough and that right. the Lyme disease is persisting elsewhere in the body and that maybe it's changed its form so that it won't show up on the tests like it should or um, there's remnants of it. I saw one one article that suggested that the cell wall from the spirochete, the Bergdorferi spirochete, can remain even after the thing's dead and persist in like joint tissue and cause an immune response there, which would explain this long-term arthritis as like a a post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome symptom. Um, Or is it that it converts into an entirely different disease like an autoimmune disorder? Yeah, some people think that it could trigger an autoimmune response and the infection's gone and this is what's happening later on is... Uh, is you have this autoimmune response that can lead to other things mm-hmm. uh, like rheumatic heart disease. Uh, I think we – did we cover uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome or just talk about it in different episodes? Uh, we've talked about it, and I think if I remember correctly, it's Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre. <laughs> Give me the I'm, apron. Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> we could both be wearing the apron for this one, though. Well, we'll, we'll split it up. I get the okay. lower half. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I get the top half. I'm porky pig in it. All right. I'm going to just cover my bits down there. <laughs> Uh, but regardless of, of what's happening, what people know is is that they don't feel right. And it's extremely frustrating yeah. to to feel these symptoms months and years later yeah. and not be taken seriously in a doctor's office. Yeah, so a lot of people are saying that we, we these this course of antibiotics shouldn't be two to four weeks. It should be many months. Right. Because you really need to get all of the, the spirochete out of there or else it's going to persist and you're going to have big problems. And then the medical establishment is saying, like, this, what you're talking about doesn't even exist. So there's a lot of frustration, like you're saying, a big disconnect. And this is something that is probably going to keep playing out, although it seems like it may be on its way out because of the epidemic proportions Lyme is taking now in the United States. Yeah, I mean, the, the statistics are mounting up such that it can't be ignored any longer. Mm-hmm. Not that it was ignored, but, you know, that's probably a harsh statement. But it's being taken way more seriously now. Yeah, so something like there's an expectation that there's going to be something like three hundred to 400,000 new cases of Lyme disease in the United States alone. And that 10 to 20% of those uh, patients will end up with chronic Lyme disease. Yeah. I mean, I spend a fair amount of time hiking around the woods with my dogs. And 
have pulled plenty of ticks off of them and plenty of ticks off of myself. Mm-hmm. And I have fatigue a lot because I have a four-year-old and every now and then I'm like, <laughs> right. do I have Lyme disease? <laughs> well, probably not. And here's why. Well, I've one, never had the bullseye, first of all. Okay, that's a big one. But yeah. also the ticks you pull off of your dog, those are dog ticks. They do not transmit Lyme. It's specifically the uh, long leg or black-legged tick, which is a type of deer tick. Well, but here's the thing. There are plenty of deer ticks in the woods. Are you saying that they if they would not latch onto a dog and they'd be like, ooh, no? I don't know. I don't know. Because there's deer ticks all over the woods. Sure, there definitely are. Um, I don't know if, if deer ticks will latch onto a dog. It's entirely possible they won't since there's such a differentiation between dog ticks and deer ticks. But I do know that dog ticks don't transmit Lyme. Well, I think we should talk about... Uh, my favorite thing from the ticks episode, and this is one I will lay on people mm-hmm. from time to time, is remember how ticks attach themselves? Sure. <laughs> they just hang out on blades of grass and things and just snap their little claws constantly, just waiting for something to pass by Yet they that they can CO2. latch onto. Right. They sense the CO2 and of the mammal that's walking past them. So interesting. And Chuck, one thing I read uh, is that somehow the lime Lyme-infected ticks, because they're infected themselves. Lyme resides as uh, in, like, small mammals and rodents as a reservoir. Yeah. They, they're infected, but they don't have symptoms. Ticks get infected with this stuff, and they're just passing it along. It's sure. not like they're the ultimate source of, of Lyme disease. No, ticks are misunderstood. They're really great. <laughs> right. <laughs> but from what I saw, the ticks that are infected with the Lyme bacteria— are actually better at finding hosts than non-infected ticks. Like it somehow yeah. enables them to be better parasites. That's amazing. Isn't that interesting. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Did we cover that, or do I just know that? Because I'm smart. I don't. I don't remember. But I do. I remember you talking about in the ticks episode about how they wave their arms in the air waiting <laughs> yeah. for somebody to pass by. And I remember one of our listeners made uh, some art of that. We got to find it. That's right. And from snapping their little fingers on a blade of grass to my dog's butt to my scrotum. Mm-hmm. It's quite a it's quite a ride. It's a wild ride. And then to Emily eventually plucking that thing out for me. That's nice. Kind of that's what marriage is all about, folks. Yeah, you just have your forearm thrust across <laughs> your eyes. You're like, "Get it out, get it out." Uh, so let's take another break. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about prevention and then a little bit about some very recent interesting uh wacky Things going on in Congress about Lyme disease as a bioweapon. Okay. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, 
No forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start, embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Okay, Chuck, you talked about prevention. How do you keep from having to have a tick pulled from your crotch? Don't ever go into Mother Nature. Just stay in your mid-century modern home with tiled floors Mm -hmm. and don't go into the woods. Sounds delicious. (laughs) No, I love the woods. You love the woods, right? Yeah. Yeah? I love watching the woods on television. From your mid-century house? No, I (laughs) do. I love the woods myself. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Get in the woods, but... um, uh, they, they recommend things like DEET. I don't use that stuff uh, mm-hmm. on my own body. But some people will say, put that all over your body and put it on your clothes and put it on your socks and shoes. and Just walk around spraying a cloud of it around you constantly <laughs> while you're in the woods. What I do is I just check for ticks. Yeah, a good thing to do, seriously, it looks super dorky, but what do you care, is to tuck your um, pant legs into your socks. Yeah, sure. Uh, when, when, and then when you come out, like wear light colors too, cause you can see the ticks a lot more easily. And then when you, when you come out of the woods, um, take your clothes off and take a shower as soon as you can and just inspect yourself, inspect your groin, your armpits, uh, your scalp. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem with Lyme disease though, is remember you get it from Tim's, er, <laughs> wow. you Tim? get it from ticks <laughs> in the nymph stage. Yeah which are really, really small. So you've got to check really, really well to see um, if you have that tick on you. Yeah, and just while you're at it, take off the adult ticks as well. Yeah. Don't yeah, leave don't them. don't just leave those on. <laughs> and check your dogs. You know, you check your dogs under their haunches, mm-hmm. like on the armpit of their legs, whatever that's called, their leg pits. Uh, check behind their ears. Check mm-hmm. under their collars. Because ticks are trying to, you know, they're not going to hang out just like on the top of their back. They may start there. But right. they're going to try and find a place that's dark and warm and out of out of view. Yeah, I don't mean to say you can't get Lyme disease from an adult, Chuck. It's just that the nymphs are far more likely to sure. feed on a human than an adult is. But a, a Lyme-infected adult tick will 
transmit sure. Lyme to you too, for yeah, sure. A very important distinction. Yep. So now we move on to the U.S. Congress. Yeah. Uh, very recently, uh, about a month ago. End of July, I think. Yeah, there was a, a U.S. House rep named Chris Smith, a Republican out of New Jersey, who introduced legislation that said, hey, Department of Defense, you should review uh, these claims that I'm seeing that our own Pentagon researched using ticks to spread Lyme disease as a bioweapon in the mid-20th century. I'm reading a lot about this mm-hmm. in books and articles that we did research on Plum Island and uh, we we and other insects too, not just ticks, of turning them into bioweapons. And this thing passed. And a lot of this comes from a book uh, written by Chris Newby called Bitten, colon, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Secret History of Lyme Disease and, and Biological Weapons. Mm-hmm. And this book, like, I think uh, Chris Smith, the representative from New Jersey, said, like, this book really inspired me to, to take up this yeah. legislation. Um, but in the book, Newby basically says the government at Fort Detrick, Maryland, and on Plum Island, New York, before it was turned into an animal disease research center, were doing— It was an insect disease research center before <laughs> right. that, I guess. They were they were looking into—well, um, they, they definitely were doing biowarfare research there. Um, but, early, early 1950s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and then Fort Detrick in t- for however long if they're not still doing it now, but the um, they they were apparently looking into ticks as delivery systems for biological weapons. Yeah, I I couldn't find that that is actually verified, but I find that highly believable. But what Newby is saying is they were doing that research. And then the way we got Lyme disease is whatever research they were coming up with escaped, say, a tick attached to a bird that flew off of Plum Island and landed in the area around Lyme, Connecticut. And these ticks got off and they started to breed and they it, they became endemic in this area. And that's where Lyme disease came from. There was actually a biological weapon that was produced and then inadvertently, probably not purposefully, released into the larger population in the Northeast. Yeah, so here's my question. Mm -hmm. I haven't read the book, uh, but are they saying that, that, that we created Lyme disease or that we just weaponized it? Because those are two very different things. Yeah, I I don't know what she's saying either. And I think um, she stops short of saying that, but that it's implied that if you put two and two together, the government was looking into biological warfare and they were talking about, um, you know, using ticks at some point. And, you know, it's really close to this ground zero of where the tick epidemic Hmm. began. You, You put two and two together. That's the impression I have is that she didn't actually come out and say it, but that she lets the reader surmise for themselves, which is the problem. Well, I mean, that's very easy to disprove if she's actually claiming that they created Lyme disease because mm-hmm. we just got through saying it was in uh, who was the the mummy? Utsi. It was in Utsi, fifty three hundred years ago. Over in the Alps. Uh, it well true, but it also in the United States. I mean, it came around in the uh, we first discovered it in the nineteen seventies and like several different places. It wasn't just Lyme, Connecticut. They found it in California. Right. And you can't just. That just it doesn't add up that it would be popping up in all these random places if it escaped from Long Island Sound in 1953. Right, which I think somebody who subscribed to this conspiracy theory and is very much what it is is a conspiracy theory that um, 
well, then the release wasn't purpose or accidental. It was purposeful. Okay. And that they spread it around the Northeast, California, and then Spooner, Wisconsin, which supposedly is the actual place where the first case of Lyme disease was described in the United States in 1969. Yeah. About six years before this uh, cluster of juvenile arthritis cases popped up in Old Lyme, Lyme, and East Haddam. Well, it's a very bad idea if that's what went on because— you have to depend on a lot of things, which mm-hmm. is, A, these ticks definitely finding their way to uh, the enemy. Uh, B, they attach to the enemy successfully and transmit the disease. And then what does it transmit? A very slow-acting disease that will give people headaches and fatigue over the course of a long time. Right, that also produces a one-of-a-kind telltale rash Right, that tells you supposedly in plenty of time that you have this um, this disease that needs to be treated with a, a simple course of oral antibiotics. Yeah, and it has to be probably in the country. They're not, they don't thrive well in the city. Right. So it's just, it doesn't make a good biological weapon. No. And then again, people who subscribe to this conspiracy theory say, well, they can't all be winners, but maybe <laughs> it was just something they were experimenting hey, with and it wasn't very good. Trust me. I mean, we've done enough research on stuff our American government used to do and mm-hmm. continue to do that... It's not the most outlandish thing in the world. No, it's not. And that's also why Chris Smith, the representative from New Jersey, shouldn't just be dismissed out of hand because it's right. entirely plausible. It's Yeah, it's not just a complete wacko idea. Right. The other reason Chris Smith shouldn't just be dismissed out of hand is because he is a true Lyme warrior. He introduced other legislation called the Tick Act. And, of course, he had to make tick an acronym. That... Or, um, <laughs> An acronym, not an anachronism. <laughs> What's it stand for? Uh, ticks, colon, Identify, Control, and Knockout Act. He was really grasping like a tick on a blade of grass with that one. But the, the point is— But knockout's it, not one word unless you use it as knockout. Well, that's what he's saying, I guess. So it's, it's really one the word. Ticko's Act. <laughs> um, but it would create an additional $180 million in federal funding for Lyme disease research, which oh, wow. is sorely needed right now. That's awesome. I didn't know yeah. he was such an advocate. That's good. He really is. He hates Lyme disease like like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was about but, to say something, but... I wish I could take a pill that would bulk <laughs> up my analogy region in my brain. Oh, your analogies are great. What were you going to say? I want to know. We can beep it off if we need to. I was going to get political. I was going to say he hates ticks like he hates Okay. <laughs> can we leave that and bleep it? I don't know. We'll find out. All right. So um, the whole idea that it's a bioweapon, almost certainly not the case, right? But it makes for good press. I mean, like if you look up t- like Lyme disease and bioweapon, there is a lot of recent articles written on it just because a member of Congress introduced this legislation. Yeah. What a lot of people are are saying is, look, it makes sense, like this conspiracy theory that people would go to that, but on the same at the same time, there's another really great explanation for it, and it's climate change that this whole thing came yeah. about in the '70s because we're starting to see what was called um, the first epidemic from climate change, and there's this really great article on Aon which is a great website, by Mary Beth Pfeiffer. Spells it like Michelle Pfeiffer with the P. Mm-hmm. Called Ticks Rising. And um, she's a, an investigative reporter, a science journalist, who really went to a lot of trouble to explain how climate change 
has created a new world for ticks, and we are now living in it. Yeah, I mean, in 2014, the EPA actually started to use four new indicators about what's going on with climate change and the impact, mm-hmm. and one of them was the spread of Lyme disease. So, right. like, the EPA officially uses that as a factor uh, and an indicator in determining the impact of climate change now. Right. And so the whole the whole basis of this idea is that because of warmer weather, ticks are being killed off in far fewer numbers from over the winter. Mm-hmm. So they're surviving longer. They're um, as it it gets warmer and warmer, higher and higher up. Their range is spreading rather rapidly. Oh yeah. And wherever these ticks go, Lyme disease is game to go with them. So the spread of Lyme disease is is increasing as the spread of ticks is increasing too. And ticks have gotten totally out of hand in some areas. In that same Aeon article, um, Mary Beth Pfeiffer was talking about how moose are dying in their thousands in like Wisconsin and the Dakotas because they're being bled to death by 100,000 ticks at once. It's amazing. That never happened before. And now all of a sudden it's kind of becoming routine because the ticks aren't dying off in the winter like they're supposed to. And again, it's because of climate change. And then in the Northeast, Chuck, one of the reasons why there's been this explosion of ticks is because there's been an explosion of deer to support the tick population. Sure. Back in the day, uh, there were things like uh, mountain lions and there were predators that would help control the deer population. Yeah, wolves. Wolves. They're even suggesting reintroducing wolves to help control the deer population. Oh, yeah. You can bet that's going to happen. <laughs> no, uh, really. No, I mean, do you think so? Yeah, totally. If, like if 300,000 people a year are coming down with Lyme in the United States, they're going to start reintroducing wolves to, to combat it if it has even a, a half of a chance. I'd be interested to see if that happens. For sure. Because humans are going to want to hunt those wolves. Yeah. You know? It just brings it out in us for some reason, huh? Well, uh, I mean, they hunted the mountain lions. Right. But I I think that's the idea of, of, oh, wait a minute, really weird and um, circuitous bad things happen when we overhunt mountain lions and wolves. Maybe when we reintroduce them, we won't have to, you know, or we won't follow that impulse. We'll just let nature take its course. Right. Who knows? You got anything else, man? I got nothing else. So there's a solution, a round of antibiotics and some wolves, and that'll cure what ails us. Yeah, advocate for yourself still, people. Sure. And the wolves. Be persistent. That's good advice for everything, Chuck. Agreed. Um, Almost everything. There's certainly cases where persistence is not a good idea, but you know what I'm saying, right? I do know. Okay. Uh, if you want to know more about Lyme disease, go check out all of the uh, articles there are to read. And again, go check out the uh, Aeon article by Mary Beth Pfeiffer. It's really interesting. Um, and since I said it's interesting, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this neat story about how great stuff you should know listeners are. Oh, I like that. From Portland, Maine. Uh, hey, guys, my wife, daughter, and I, all stuff you should know listeners for years, decided last minute to buy tickets to the show while on vacation at Old Orchard Beach, Maine, uh, just a short drive south of Portland. Uh, We had nosebleed seats, naturally, because we waited until just an hour before showtime. Uh, And that was more than cool by us, and we were totally stoked just to be there, whatever the seats. (laughs) When we got to our balcony seats, a friendly fellow named Matt approached us, said he had three tickets for orchestra seats, and asked if we'd like them. 
Uh, the tickets were intended for friends uh, of his who were stuck in Labor Day weekend traffic, couldn't make it to the show. Aww. Turns out he had been scouting the crowd for 40 minutes uh, looking for a group of three, even enlisting the help of the ushers to find three people together. Hmm. And we were the first group that he saw. A uh, brief walk downstairs, and there we were, three rows from the stage for the supremely excellent show about podcast topic redacted. <laughs> Thanks to Matt and his friends uh, being stuck in traffic. We went from not having tickets an hour before showtime to having third row 10 minutes before you guys took stage. Uh, we considered it a pe- little piece of true magic. So while I'm confident this lengthy setup and telling you the story is way too long for the air. No. Not true, Richard Clark. The whole family would be forever grateful if you could give Matt and the Connecticut groundskeeper a huge thank you from Rich, Susan, and Emily in upstate New York for sharing those seats with us. That is fantastic. I love our shows, man. It's great. People are so kind. And that is from Richard Clark. Not Dick Clark, but Rich Clark. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. Dick Clark's taken. That's right. And good for Rich Clark for recognizing that, too. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for coming to the show, Rich, and bringing the family. And thank you, Matt, for being such a cool dude. That was very nice of you. I'm utterly unsurprised because our fans are pretty great people. Yes. Okay, well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and you can send us a tweet or an Insta post or a comment or what have you, that kind of thing, um, because all of our social links are there. Or you can just do it the old-fashioned way and send an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold-pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions.